P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. President Trump just now in his comments reiterated his statement uh, that he has said many times before that the best thing politically for Republicans to do would be just to allow Obamacare to fail because it will be a disaster. Uh, With us to get a little bit more insight into what potentially are the problems and what the disaster might have looked like uh, is Susan DeVore. She's CEO of Premier, uh, which advises uh, healthcare systems across the country and has a really good vantage point to uh, look across the U.S. healthcare system. Susan, uh, we're so glad to have you today. So just to weigh in on that point, what are the main problems that President Trump is probably talking about uh, when he calls uh, Obamacare a disaster that it would evolve into one should uh, the Republicans not do anything to it. Uh, thanks so much, Lisa. I-, I think what he's talking about is that health care and Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act, uh, it's very costly. It limits choice in some ways uh, for patients, and it's very complicated. And I think that he, um, I think he believes that uh, consumers being more engaged in their health care and having a more uh, free market competitive system uh, will be more effective for consumers. But that doesn't sound like a disaster. Where's the disaster part? You know, I think the disaster part is really um, probably embedded in just the overall total cost. The benefit plan design is pretty rich. The subsidies to Medicaid are pretty high. And so I think what he worries about is the impact to businesses, the impact to taxpayers for the cost of health care. Can we just step back for just a second? Because I noted that uh, Brad Wilson was introduced. He is the head of uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield in North Carolina, which is where uh, Premier is uh, headquartered. So you've got an ally or at least a colleague uh, speaking with the president. Is health care a national issue or is it a state issue? Health care is actually delivered locally. It's even uh, smaller than state or national because these healthcare systems in communities are there forever serving those populations, whether there's any payment or exchanges or Medicaid subsidy. Um, but I would say that the Trump administration would like for it to be a more state-based system. And part of the changes that we believe are coming are really around how do you empower the states to take more control of Medicaid. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, how would you? So I think the plan is that if you could change the level of subsidy and in some ways have a fixed amount, a cap or a block grant, and give it to the states, you would then give the states the flexibility to decide how best to take care of their Medicaid populations. But how does that jibe with this idea of allowing uh, people or participate in a government-sponsored health plan 
to go across state lines? I mean, how does that how does that play into uh, that whole discussion? Makes it harder. I mean, uh, one, I call it 50 shades of healthcare. I mean, you will have 50 different programs, 50 different measurement systems. If you're a provider, you're a doctor, or you're a healthcare system, and especially if you're a multi-state healthcare system, you will have multiple different programs trying to essentially accomplish the same things. Well, let's just follow on with that topic, because it seems as though with the introduction of technology, greater information sharing, and the ability of people to be mobile, right? If you want an operation and you know that the best result can be garnered from a hospital in Texas and you happen to live in Illinois, um, that should be or that may be an option for you. Is, is there a better way to deliver health care on this scale and take advantage of the, uh, the cost savings? If only that worked, it would be a much better way. The problem is we have to lift this iron curtain on data because there are so many limitations in the portability of data across multiple informa- uh, information systems. It just doesn't work today. And that's so, not even a health care issue. It's really. not even a health care issue. So how would you do that? What, would, what do you think if you would like to see new legislation introduced in Congress? We need legislation introduced. There's already been some legislation introduced along with the 21st Cures Act, 21st Century Cures Act, which really really requires standards for healthcare. I mean, every other industry has had standards for transmitting information, privacy standards, security standards, reporting standards. We don't have it yet. You know, ultimately, this whole debate about Obamacare comes down to cost, right? I mean, that's the that's the essential issue here. Is there a way to meaningfully reduce costs at a time when the US population is aging dramatically? Yeah. So at Premier, we spend every day figuring out how do we improve quality and safety and lower the cost of health care. The demographics are, are driving the cost up. The lack of coordination and the fragmentation of care is driving cost up. The inability to exchange this information is driving cost up. And costs are growing at 1% to 2% faster rate than the GDP. That is not going to work. Right. But is there a way to Let's say you did, uh, you know, streamline the data. She wants sharing. a magic bullet. No, I mean, like, but I, I'm just trying to figure out. I mean, if we sort of follow a certain prescription with streamlining of the data, uh, with you know, maybe I don't know if you would advocate for government negotiation for prices, uh, you know, pharmaceutical prices or not. I mean, that's a very touchy subject. Um, but are there ways to bring it down, or is this just an inevitability of an aging population? Lots of ways to bring it down, and at Premier, where we 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 uh, process $50 billion of supply chain spend by creating competitive friction between suppliers to drive the cost down. We work with healthcare systems to, you know, reduce infections, reduce readmissions, lower the length of stay in a hospital. We have just 350 hospitals that have been working together on this for several years. They alone have saved $15 billion. So there are lots of ways to do it, but you have to coordinate the care, you have to have standards for reporting. You have to enable providers to actually work together, remove a bunch of the regulations and barriers, which I do think the Trump administration is intent on doing. Will we see a system in which we'll actually be able to know how much the health care costs? And I don't mean on a larger level, you know, billions, but in terms of an individual, a patient, actually being able to know, at the very least, how much a procedure costs. 
Yeah, I think that part of the um, push for the Trump administration and the Republicans is to get consumers engaged. So if you have health care savings accounts, you start to get transparency. Consumers start to demand transparency to the to the price of procedures and to the things that are being used and get involved in those decisions. So I think it's going to take a while, but I think that is definitely where the Republicans want to go. Well, one thing that President Trump mentioned was Tom Price, Dr. Price, right. uh, head of uh, Health and Human Services. What can doctors do in this context? And is that also a challenge? Because you have the American Medical Association still is a state-based program. Right. And, you know, many have said that 80 percent of the cost of health care comes from the doctor's pen. So they really are the place where a lot of decisions are being made. We actually think this whole uh, repeal and replace will take two to three years. It will have three steps. The first is the repeal with reconciliation. The second is Dr. Price. He has a lot of regulatory flexibility, and the third will be several incremental bills to replace it over time. Have you been in touch with representatives who are drafting the uh, new version of Obamacare? We have. We have a big Washington-based office, and we routinely meet with a lot of the Republicans and a lot of the— Do you get a sense of how uh, cohesive the Republicans are when it comes to a new proposal? There's a lot of discussion and debate, and it's what makes us at Premier think this is going to take time, and it's going to be an incremental bills that they can build support for. What's the most controversial aspect? The most controversial aspect, I think, at this point is that you have Medicaid expansion for 10 million people, and the benefit plan design is rich and the subsidy is rich. And how how do you pull that back? How do you change that? And how do you get um, some cost containment into that system, I think, is a big challenge. And the people who have expanded Medicaid have a hard time, you know, reducing it or taking it away. The people who haven't expanded Medicaid can't maybe afford to expand Medicaid. So I think that's probably the toughest part of this. Well, it's interesting because that ties back to Lisa's first question having to do with block grants and money flowing to the states. What's the implication for Medicaid in that context? So, Brad Wilson, you mentioned from North Carolina. In North Carolina, they're taking two approaches. One is a managed care insurance approach. The other is a provider-led, healthcare system-led approach. If you give states uh, a flat rate, a capped amount, a block grant, there's all kinds of flexibility for those states to figure out how to coordinate that care. And so I think that is the that is the method that they will use to try to contain costs and get predictability to that line item. At the same time, some of this stuff has to be done at the federal level. Well, this is the problem with 50 different programs for Medicaid. If you had 50 different programs for Medicare, I mean, actually managing that, if you're a doctor or you're a hospital or you're a health system, it's, it's, it's totally unmanageable. So I do think we need federal standards federal framework. We need to make sure that patients are protected, transparency is there, costs are predictable and managed. And so I think it is a combination of federal and state programs. Well, thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us and educating us all. Uh, Susan DeVore is the chief executive of Premier, the uh, symbol P-I-N-C, based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thank you very much. I know this is going to be a topic that we're going to be calling on your expertise in the future.
Well, let's get more on what Warren Buffett said in his annual uh, letter to shareholders on Saturday uh, with Noah Buhayar. He is a Bloomberg reporter covering Berkshire Hathaway, covering this letter and subsequent commentary uh, from Warren Buffett. Noah, what was your biggest takeaway from this letter? Uh, I think the biggest thing that that Buffett commented on here was just the tremendous amount of money that has been wasted on active management. Uh, he, he estimated conservatively that money managers uh, have eaten up uh, $100 billion over the last 10 years uh, on, on fees that really didn't deliver returns um, that, that beat the market. So that was that was far and away his, his, his big takeaway Wait, from this letter. No, it doesn't Warren Buffett have a $1 million bet he will give $1 million to charity if he can beat hedge fund managers by investing in a passive S&P 500 index this year? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a 10-year bet, and it's coming to an end. He, he bets that, uh, like you said, an S&P 500 tracker uh, from Vanguard could, could beat um, a basket of hedge funds. It was actually several funds of funds. Um, and uh, nine years into that bet, he's way ahead. It ends on December 31st, and he basically declared an early victory. Noah, explain what uh, Warren Buffett's position uh, is on people who can actually uh, outpace the market when it comes to returns. So, yeah, that's a great question. He did, he did throw that crowd a bone. He said it's not impossible to do that. Obviously, Buffett himself is an example, and and he thinks that he can keep doing that at Berkshire. He, he's not buying index funds for Berkshire. What, um, what he did say, though, is that it's incredibly difficult to identify people who can outperform over the long haul early on in their careers. Because if you don't do it early in their careers, it's, you're, you're often going to miss out on that incredible performance that, that those managers are going to have. You know, I found it compelling, aside from the passive and, and active uh, debate that is quite heated and topical at the moment, I thought that Warren Buffett's optimism was somewhat surprising because Warren Buffett was a longtime supporter of Hillary Clinton, and he made no mention of President Trump. And he said that children born in America today have the brightest future ever and continue to reiterate his faith in the economy that even if there are hiccups, that it will keep chugging along. What did you make of this? Well, actually, I thought the, those passages were quite consistent with what he, what he said. Um, and, you know, he's, he has expressed optimism about the prospects for business in America for a long, long time. I mean, you can go back to his letters. He's he's obviously been an incredible beneficiary of it, um, but 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 so have lots of other people. And I think his point there really was to tell people that business will do fine in America. We have a good economic system, and it doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office. Uh, you are right to point out that he was a big backer of Hillary Clinton, and policy-wise, lined up with her a lot more. But I think what Buffett was trying to do in this letter is remind people that. Over the history of America, business has done just fine. Our capitalist system has worked very, very well. And, and, and he was reminding people that they shouldn't get too wrapped up in uh, maybe the doom and gloom of the moment. He also spoke uh, sort of eloquently about um, uh, his uh, his vision for the, his position in the future, right? I mean, he said that, you know, he's ready to go. He doesn't foresee retirement anytime soon, although uh, he did say some things. It's, you know, it's difficult to identify the things that he's going to be interested in, but he's always ready to take advantage of opportunities. Right, 
Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of incredible. At 86, he just, uh, I mean, just this morning said he in, in increased his Apple stake. It's now north of $18 billion. I mean, this is a guy who's quipped that he still uses the flip phone. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there was nothing in the letter that suggested he's, he's ready to hang up his cleats. And, um, you know, quite to the contrary, he Berkshire keeps evolving and he keeps thinking about ways to expand and grow the business over time. Let's talk about Apple. This morning, Warren Buffett said that he continued to buy uh, Apple shares uh, at, at a rapid clip and that it is now, I believe, his second biggest holding. What do you make yeah. of this? Uh, I mean, uh, what I make of that is I think what we wrote last year when, when the stake was first disclosed is that uh, Apple, you know, Buffett has long had this aversion to tech companies, but they're not looking at Apple as a tech company. They're looking at it more as a consumer products company. And if you think about Apple from that vantage, it really does start to check some of the boxes that, that Buffett cares about. It, it, the iPhone, you know, he said this morning is just this incredibly sticky product. And when you have an ecosystem of apps and uh, all the stuff that Apple is, is uh, providing in terms of, of, of the cloud, um, people are just reluctant to uh, change devices or switch to a different ecosystem. So um, I think I think that played in um, more than uh, his you know past reservations about uh, being able to guess where technology is going. Noah, he also spoke about furniture. Maybe you want to sit on something while you're using your Apple product, and uh, that is a good connection to uh, taxes. He spoke a little bit about that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I think he was cautioning people. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the the uh, border adjustment and what's going to happen with respect to tax reform, and I think he 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 threw some cold water on the idea that we were going to have this major major overhaul. Um, in, in, in part because um, uh, there's uh, there's some political realities and um, well economic pretty... realities too right because he's got furniture yes. stores he says it's 75 percent right. of what you see is imported and that if right. they have to pay right. an import tax on it they're just going to pass it along to uh, to consumers yep that's 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 exactly what he said, and um, uh, we're going to have to see over the course of this year uh, if he's right. Um, I want to ask about bonds. He was pretty negative about treasuries, and he did reduce the proportion of government bond holdings in his portfolio. How w- how well has he timed the bond market? Uh, you know, I think I think the 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 more important thing to look at there is just it, Buffett has had this bent. Um, towards stocks, towards wanting to own productive assets for a long time. And uh, it's even though the bond portfolio has been shrinking, he's got a lot of other investments that are bond-like. Uh, if you look at the amount of money that Berkshire has poured into the utility industry, for example, I mean, the balance sheet of these electric uh, you know, power companies that they own, these are regulated utilities that kick off pretty dependable returns. Um, and in, in certain ways, they serve as a bond-like investment on Berkshire's balance sheet. So I, I don't think the discussion is really about whether Buffett timed the market right or wrong. He just, he just has a philosophy about investing in productive assets and wanting to be an owner of companies. And I think that's reflected in, in Berkshire's portfolio. Burlington Northern, uh, Santa Fe, uh, he spoke uh, in the letter about uh, industrials and uh, infrastructure in the United States. So give us your take. Yeah, um, BNSF had a had a tougher year last year, and I think 
Buffett laid that out pretty clearly. Um, a big challenge with BNSF is that uh, it's a major one of the major things it hauls is coal, and we've seen a, a shift in the U.S. away from power plants using as, as much coal. We we have more natural gas electric generation now, so that's hurt the railroad. Um, also, some of the business they were getting from you know providing. Uh, materials and hauling oil away from from our onshore production in the U.S. That that business has declined. Um, but overall, you know, Buffett reiterated that he's committed to spending lots of capital to make sure the railroad, uh, you know, the, they upgrade their tracks and have um, are spending the kind of capital that 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 they need to make that a world class uh, company. He also said he did. I'm saying your pardon. Go ahead. Uh, well, uh, I, I thought that um, he also talked about spending money. Uh, he doesn't mind spending big money for fees if he gets a good deal. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, that was that was Buffett's sort of typical advertisement that he sticks in the annual letter. He wants to wants to buy businesses. He's he has said that Berkshire is a sprawling conglomerate that wants to sprawl ever further. So uh, that was. That, to me, was an advertisement telling, you know, investment bankers who have ideas about businesses Berkshire might want to buy to, you know, come knock on his door. Thanks very much, uh, Noah Buhire. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. I want to bring in Brendan Brown, chief economist and head of economic research at Mitsubishi UFJ Securities. Uh, Brendan, you wrote about how the U.S. can win currency wars. And I want to get to that. But I want to start with something else that we were talking about earlier in the program about how uh, the bond market right now is is sending a veto to the Fed as far as hiking rates in March. And I wanted to ask you, do you agree that the Fed would accept the bond market's guidance as absolute and would only would only hike rates if the bond market was absolutely pricing it in. Do you agree with that? I don't agree with that at all. I think the bond market at the moment is 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 entranced um, by the Fed, as are many other markets. Um, if you look at the general way markets have been behaving, been behaving in recent weeks, stock market up, gold market up, credit credit spreads down. You've got a general. Um, vibrant asset price inflation going here. And that's um, dominated, I think, by a perception of the Fed is being pretty easy, if not easing policy. You, you have to go back to an observation of Milton Friedman, but you can't, you can't measure the stance of monetary policy by looking at interest rates at a time when growth is accelerating everywhere around the world. If rates in the US only go up 25 basis points once a year, the US is actually expanding monetary policy at a, at a more rapid rate than ever before. Well, does that bode well for our future economic performance and the future of asset prices? 
No, because I think what we're seeing in the U.S. is classic to many other asset price inflation cycles we've seen in the U.S. That you get to a fairly late stage, like in early 2016, where the asset markets look very shaky. The Fed comes in and does a Greenspan put or a strong put or a Yellen put, whatever you want to call it. Um, Six months down the road, if it works, the whole global economy begins to pick up. Asset markets begin to look frothy. And I think that's where we are now. But we know from previous history that that sort of late cycle it doesn't normally end up well. Well, okay. So, given the fact that we're in a sort of later cycle in the credit uh, in the credit markets, you have a, an unpredictable president in the United States. You know, you have a Federal Reserve that may or may not hike three times or more this year. How do you then go from that to pricing in the path of the U.S. dollar? Well, the U.S. dollar is dominated by, first of all, perceptions of relative strength around the world, the U.S. economy versus everyone else, plus perceptions about um, the extraordinary policies being followed in um, Europe and Japan. So at the moment, the dollar is sort of looking a bit weakish, especially against the yen, um, because of the perception that Janet Yellen is going very slow in rate rises and may not raise rates at all in April or March. We don't know. Um, but if if, if uh, that perception changes, then the dollar will change with that. What's the biggest miscalculation that you've experienced, let's say, over the last 12 months? In other words, something you thought was going to happen or thought that wasn't going to happen, and it came back to hit you in the face? Well, let's put it this way. When the Fed exercised the Yellen put last year and effectively backed away from any rate rises. Um, could one be sure that was going to work, that it was going to bring a rebound in markets and an acceleration in economic recovery? I certainly had that as a scenario, but if I go back and look at my work last spring, I was probably giving that scenario 30 or 40% probability as against 100%. What, so, yeah. What's your highest conviction forecast right now? My highest conviction forecast is that we're going to see, continue to see quite a strong growth momentum around the world for several quarters. Um, but, I, but within six quarters to two years, I think like all previous late cycle monetary inflations, this is going to end up badly. Going to end up badly. Well, is there, anything, is there any way to protect uh, oneself? Well, I think, I think the way to protect oneself against these outcomes are the obvious ones. Um, long positions in gold, short positions in long treasury bonds, short positions in, in equities. Um, Cash. But, but as, you, as, as we know, Arthur Miller famously said that if it's Wednesday in the markets and enough people think it's Thursday, then it's Thursday. But of course, after 100 Wednesdays, people may begin to realize it's not Thursday. <laughs> I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Brendan Brown, uh, on this Monday, uh, Chief Economist and Head of Economic Research at Mitsubishi UFJ Securities. Last week, Bloomberg's Michael McKee sat down exclusively with Mexico's economy minister, uh, and he found out some interesting uh, interesting tidbits about Mexico's approach to negotiating trade with the U.S. Let's take a listen. You never engage in a new dialogue uh, with, the, uh, with the idea in your mind to go into a trade war. That will be a lose-lose proposi proposition for both nations. 
you rather engage in a very propositive view, trying to move forward, an agreement that will benefit Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. We hear a lot about whether or not Mexico is going to talk with the U.S., but we're getting a maybe perhaps a clearer sense of what lines are being drawn. Uh, to get more of a sense of that is Eric Martin, economy reporter for Bloomberg in Mexico City. So, Eric, what was the big takeaway for you from this interview? Lisa, the big takeaway is that Mexico is absolutely and unequivocally unwilling to accept tariffs being added to NAFTA. The idea is that this is a free trade agreement. And so if you start talking about trade, which is in some way limited, by definition, it stops becoming a free trade agreement. And Mexico has been very firm on on that stance, and they've uh, reiterated it in various ways, but perhaps never as forcefully as Minister Guajardo last Friday. Can you talk to the issue of whether this really is a trade agreement that needs to be updated? Let's put the political rhetoric to the side, but are there some things that need to be renegotiated given the fact that this is a treaty that was completed before the iPhone was released? Kim, certainly uh, that is a point of view that's popular even among the people who wrote NAFTA and negotiated it uh, more than 20 years ago. I spoke in January with Carla Hills, who was the U.S. trade negotiator, and she compared it to a uh, a house that needs some uh, remodeling and repainting, but that when you have an old house that still serves, you don't knock down the house. That was the metaphor that she used. And with NAFTA, it was before the iPhone. There was no e-commerce, no Amazon. Uh, There was very little done in terms of intellectual property protections. And Mexico had enshrined in its constitution a prohibition on foreign and private companies uh, being involved in oil exploration and production here. So all of those areas are areas that Mexico has said should be incorporated into NAFTA. Uh, The law has since been changed uh, in 2013 to uh, welcome that kind of foreign investment in the oil and energy industry. And so those are some of the areas where Mexico has said, yes, definitely, 23 years in, we should be updating, we should be modernizing. What we don't want to do is adopt any rules and any tariffs that would take a step backwards and would interrupt supply chains, would put an end to some of this integration that has been so key to the increase in trade uh, between the two countries. Right. Well, Eric, uh, then let's look at it from the U.S. point of view. If Mexico will not negotiate any deal that even talks about tariffs, will the U.S. negotiate a deal that does not include tariffs? You know, that's a question that everyone is asking. Uh, Steve Mnuchin was out last week saying that the U.S. is uh, interested in a scenario or in a solution that would be a win-win situation for Mexico and the U.S. And, uh, you know, a lot of Trump's kind of emissaries and deputies have been making uh, positive statements about NAFTA and about working with the U.S. But then you have in the beginning of January, Trump tweeting about General Motors and Toyota imports to the U.S., threatening a 35 percent tariff, which not only would violate NAFTA, but would also violate the norms of the WTO. And so for Mexico, uh, the real nightmare scenario is not Trump leaving NAFTA. The minister said that's something Mexico can essentially live with. Uh, It's the concern that Trump would leave the WTO or adopt policies that violate the WTO. But in that case, it's a concern and a problem not only for Mexico, but for the entire world and the multilateral trading system. 
If the United States seeks to uh, amend or change uh, the World Trade Organization's relationship with uh, countries' uh, trade and tariff uh, laws, uh, what's likely to trans uh, transpire? There would be any number of legal challenges. Uh, countries could adopt reciprocal measures that mirror U.S. tariffs and quotas. It really uh, is a spiral, a death spiral for uh, globalization as we know it, and it would cause all kinds of distortions and, uh, and issues in terms of international trade. I mean, that's what really every analyst who we speak to uh, tells us. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Eric Martin is our economy reporter for Bloomberg News in in Mexico City, uh, giving us an update on uh, any revamp or a change or renegotiation to the North American Free Trade Agreement. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.